Well, we are in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to walk through verses 17 through 27. Let me go ahead and read that passage for us this morning. On one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof to let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home. Glorifying God, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Last week, we talked about the corruption of sin. The reality of all people who are born into this world, who are born dead in their trespasses and sins. They're born defiled. They they, they are born unclean. Like that leper who is determined to be unclean by the priest and has to stay out, is not allowed to be in the city, is not allowed to reside with the others, is not allowed to go and to gather in worship at the temple, is not allowed to participate in the ceremonial system of Israel. So it is the one who is born unclean, the one who is sinful. It is a disease that you are born with it is affecting you from the inside and it has its effects outwardly now the effects of sin may be different in each one of us some people the effects of sin may be shining in greater ways they may be sinning in greater and greater ways so we talked about we used that example we said you know you could have a leper that just barely has the white spot it's just beginning to show the effects of leprosy And he could look at another leper that is is greatly deformed, that's been greatly affected by leprosy, and he could think higher of himself than he should. He could think, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not like this guy over here. I'm not deformed in this way. It hasn't affected me in the same way. But the reality is the effects of leprosy are there within him, and they will manifest themselves over time unless something changes. And so it is with sin. To have but a little sin is to make yourself unclean. The Lord says, be holy as I am holy. The Lord Jesus says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Our problem is, is that we are not. And so we are defiled. And so we are affected in this way. And we need the cleansing work of Christ. We need the work of Christ to fall upon us. And that's what we talked about last week, the need of cleansing, the need to be made right, the need to be made pure, the need to be made whole. 
And no amount of work on the part of the leper could ever deal with his ailment, to ever deal with his disease. It doesn't matter how much he cleaned himself, how much he scrubbed. It was an internal issue. He needed to be changed from the inside outward. And we saw a man that was changed. A man who was, as Luke says, full of leprosy. The effects of leprosy were greatly upon him. And he was very bold. And he went out. And he went to Jesus. And we saw in that incredible passage. You remember what Jesus did? He touched him. He touched this leper. And was Jesus full of leprosy at that point? Absolutely not. Jesus remained pure. Jesus remained untainted. But the leper was cleansed. That's the picture that we talked about. This idea of the imputation of sin upon Christ from us and the imputation of his righteousness upon us. That's the beauty that we have and that's what Christ has given to us. We see another aspect of the effects of sin. So it's not just that we're unclean. It's not just that we're affected. It's not just that we're, we're ceremonially un, un, unclean like the leper was. We're impure. We're also unable to do anything that is worthwhile or good. It doesn't mean that we don't have a standard of righteousness that we might look to, a standard of righteousness that we might see and we might determine ourselves to be legitimate based upon that standard. When we look to the holy standard of God's law, we in our natural state are unable to do anything that is good or worthwhile. This is the doctrine that we call total inability. So there's three points that I want us to pull out of this passage. We're going to talk about the total inability of the incapacitated sinner. We're going to emphasize there upon the man who was paralyzed and his friends are bringing him down that he may see Jesus. And this picture of this total inability that we see with this man and how it points to our spiritual total inability apart from the work of Christ upon us. But we're also going to see the judgment of debilitated sinners. These debilitated sinners that will pass judgment upon Jesus and what he does. Those that are sitting there before Jesus to hear him teach but do not recognize his lordship. Do not recognize his sovereignty. Do not recognize his saving power and neither do they see him as one who is going to save them. They see themselves not as one who even needs to be saved. And thirdly, we'll see the grace of the powerful Lord. And we see this great contrast that is there between the power of Christ Jesus and his ability to save sinners and to work within them and the inability of sinners to do anything in and of themselves. Let's start with that first point. The total inability of the debilitated sinner. We see that in verses 17 through 19 in Luke chapter 5. And Luke writes, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. 
And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. There's a lot that's happening within this narrative. And there's a lot that's happening in this section that I want us to use this first point to really unpack this. We have a man here who is a paralytic. He's unable to do anything for himself in regard to mobility. He can't move himself around. He is moved around by friends that care for him. That's how he gets from one place to another. He lies on a stretcher and they bring him around. And either he or his friends came up with the idea of bringing him before Jesus. For they had heard of the renown of Jesus. They had heard that Jesus is the one that can heal this man. Jesus is the one that can make this man whole. And this is something that had gone out throughout the area. And this was no small task to bring this man before Jesus. I really want you to grasp and understand the, 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 the extent to which these men went to bring their friend before Jesus. I mean, you can imagine how difficult it would be to carry an adult a short distance. Imagine carrying someone just a few feet. Imagine carrying someone many yards it's possible that he was right down the street from where they were meeting, but it's also quite reasonable that they had to carry him quite a distance to bring him to where Jesus was teaching. And it's not just that they brought him there to where Jesus was teaching. Once they got there, they had no way to access Jesus. They had no way to bring their friend into this, this building so that he could be before Jesus. But they were absolutely intent on seeing Jesus. They were intent on bringing their friend before the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing was going to get in their way. Physical limitations, they were not going to allow those to get in the way. Social limitations, absolutely not. They were going to do whatever was necessary to bring their friend before Jesus. Oh, that we would have such zeal to bring people before Jesus. Understand this, their behavior in this text is not normal. This is not a socially normal way to behave in this culture or pretty much any other culture in the world. This is not how you normally act. But they saw this man's need and they saw the grace that was there in Christ Jesus. They saw the power of Jesus. And they wanted to bring their friend that was paralyzed before Jesus that he could be healed. You need to understand how houses were at this time. They would generally have an area which was on the roof where people would gather together, where people could hang out. It was kind of like an extra room or an extra area. Someone could stay up there for the night if it was a cool night or it wasn't wet. It was also an area where people could gather together for parties or just to hang out. You can kind of think of it like a, like a balcony. And that's why they have one of the rules, one of the judicial laws that we have is that there must be a parapet going around the roof. And that was for the purpose. It was like a railing. If someone were to fall off the edge of the roof, this would catch them. They would be, they would be saved. Um, and so that's the idea that is here. And the access to these roofs would normally be through a ladder or through a set of small stairs or you'd have a combination of, the bo of, of both of them where you'd have some stairs that go up and then you would climb up a ladder. Regardless of what it was, regardless of how it is that, that you went up there, it was not designed to carry a man on a stretcher. It was going to be a narrow area and it was going to be some difficulty to get this man 
up there. And the reality is, once they got up on the roof, they still didn't have immediate access to Jesus because you've got the roof of this house in the way. They've got to dig through the roof. And so what do these men do? They begin to chisel and rip apart the roof. This, this roof came apart. It was comprised of tiles. Um, they could be removed. These are things that could be removed. You could let air go through the house. But these are tiles you need to understand that were in there. They were reasonably secure. They were intended to be there and to keep water from getting into the house. So these men are ripping up someone's roof to go and bring the person down to Jesus. I can only imagine that this was a little distracting to everyone that was in there listening to Jesus. I can only imagine that some amount of debris would have been falling down upon people. I'm sure people weren't getting injured. But this was socially awkward. This wasn't a normal thing to do. This isn't something you would normally do uh, to someone's house at this time. But they were intent on bringing their friend to Jesus. They had their eyes set on Christ Jesus. They saw Jesus as the only means whereby their friend could be healed. This man who had been a paralytic throughout his life, this man who was, who was, who was leaning on the help of others, that he could live, that he could survive, to even move around. And so that's what they did. They ripped a hole in the roof. And they not only ripped a hole in the roof, they, they would have brought what they needed. These are men of some industry. They would have brought what they needed to rip the roof apart and then to bring the man downward because they can't just rip him apart and then drop him down there. So they would have had the ropes. They would have had everything that was necessary. So they made preparation. They had ropes to probably secure him very safely to the stretcher. They would have had ropes that were of some decency, some sturdiness that they could lower their friend downward. And the other detail that I think that you may overlook is the perspective of this man. This man that I believe he had faith in Jesus and had faith in what Jesus could do, it doesn't change the social awkwardness of what's happening here. Jesus is in the middle of teaching all of these great leaders in Israel at this time, these highly respected people, and this man who is paralyzed is being brought down on a stretcher right in the middle of everyone. And what's going to happen when he gets down there? Is everyone going to laugh at him? Certainly, there was some embarrassment here on his end. This was a humbling experience for him. I can't help but make the connection that for any of you coming to Christ Jesus, it is going to be humbling. It is necessary that you be humbled. It is necessary that you see your need of Jesus. It is necessary that you see you have absolutely no hope in any other means of salvation, any other means of having any spiritual worth any spiritual significance, there is none. You must see your lostness. You must see your deadness to sin. You must see your hopelessness to go down any other avenue apart from Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was their mindset here, that they would bring him to Jesus they saw his inability to do anything for himself. They saw his inability to make himself healed, to make himself better. They saw their inability to go and to change his circumstance. He needed Jesus. They needed to bring him to Jesus. We read this passage last week, and it talks about our total depravity. 
It talks about in this passage our inability to do anything good or worthwhile spiritually. And that was Romans chapter 3. I would like to read it again. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Paul here is using various passages from the Old Testament, many of them from the Psalms, others from the prophets, to talk about our natural state. This is our natural state. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. It doesn't mean that everyone is out there claiming to be an atheist. It means that we are natural-born idolaters, and we are naturally born worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. We're unable to do anything good or worthwhile on our own. We're not naturally born seeking after God. There's evidence of God all around us, but we don't naturally seek after God. He continues in verse 12, all have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. And you hear that and you think, well, no one does good. And you might say to yourself, well, I can think of someone, not even one, that's what he says. Paul knows that you're thinking of someone. You're thinking of someone that does good. Well, I know this. No, no, not even one. Even that one that you're thinking of, you're using a different standard of righteousness to deem that person good. No, you must. We're not looking at our cultural standard of goodness. We're not looking at the Pharisee standard of goodness. We're not looking at the Roman Catholic Church's stance of goodness. We're not looking at Southern culture in the United States' standard of goodness. No. We're looking at the Lord's standard of goodness. Continues in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So they're speaking that which is vile. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This doesn't mean that people are actively, necessarily, physically killing someone, but they are despising one who is made in the image of God, even in their mind, even from their heart. They're not respecting one who is made in the image of God. Those that walk forward in these very serious sins, we talk about serious sins, like murdering someone, like committing adultery. These are sins that have happened many times over in someone's mind and heart before they manifest themselves physically. Continuing verse 10, in their paths are ruin and misery and the peace, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is our natural state. Understanding us based upon God's standard, we are unable to do anything good. This doesn't mean that we are born as bad as we can be. This doesn't mean that someone who is not in Christ is as evil as they can possibly be. That's not what this means at all. It means that you are unable to do anything good in and of yourself because you are born dead in your trespasses and sins. And understand this, if you were able to do anything good in and of yourself, you wouldn't need Jesus. There would be no need for the Son of God to assume flesh and come down as a man, to be born of a virgin and to live his life and to suffer on the cross and die. If you could have done it yourself, there was no need for him to fulfill the moral law on your behalf if you could have done it. That's our problem. 
when we look at the standard rightly, when we look at God's standard, we are unable to do it. So we see that first point, the, the total inability of the incapacitated sinner. And that's demonstrated here in this narrative of this man who was unable to move on his own, unable to do anything on his own. He needs Christ to act on his behalf. And it's easy to look at that man and to see the ways in which he can't move. But I want you to see the other sinners that are there in the room. I want you to see how debilitating sin is upon the human existence. I want you to see the judgment of debilitated sinners. Look at verses 20 and 21. Luke chapter 5. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And I want you to see a picture that is being painted here in this text by Luke. And there is a contrast that is here. You have these men who are desiring to bring their friend before Jesus. They are intent on seeing Jesus. They are intent on Christ working upon their friend that he can be saved, that he can have life, that he can no longer be paralyzed. And you have these others that are in the room sitting around him, coming from all over the place, coming from Judea, coming from Jerusalem, coming from Galilee, all these different places, and coming together that they can sit before him not that they may receive healing and forgiveness, but that they may judge him. There is a long pattern here in the New Testament of the scribes and the Pharisees coming before Jesus, seeing the work of Jesus. Though Jesus is there, he is fulfilling what was prophesied about him. He is doing exactly what the prophecy said that the Messiah would do. And they're standing before him and judging him, not by God's law, Judging him not by the word of God, but judging him based upon their own man-made standards of the law. Not according to God's law, but based upon their own tradition. Based upon their desire of how it is they think the law of God should be practiced. And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. This was intentional. Jesus drew this line in the sand intentionally. He knew they sat before him, and they sat before him in judgment of him, and they did not see him as the Son of God. They did not see him as one who was fully God and fully man. They did not see him as the Messiah, because he was not coming as the Messiah they desired. He was not coming forward as a political leader that would reign and rule over them and rule over them and crush the Romans. No, he was coming that he would rule over the hearts of men and affect them in that way. The Pharisees are there, not seeking the forgiveness of sins, but they're judging Jesus' legitimacy, and they're using their own legalistic standards. They didn't see their need for Christ's forgiveness. They, see, they saw Christ as one who needed to justify himself before them, not themselves as one who needed to be justified before Christ. And the scribes and the Pharisees believed they were adding to God's law. That is what the legalist does. 
That is what the Pharisees would do. They would go and they would emphasize certain aspects of the law, and they would go and they would emphasize certain aspects so much that they would lead other people to actually ignore the spirit of the law, the intent behind the law, and sometimes directly violating what the law says. Where the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother, and an understanding of that which is taught in the law is that they were to care for their parents in their older age. And they taught them, you don't have to take care of your parents in their older age. If you give what you were going to give to them to the temple, we'll call it Corbin. And they thereby violated, violated the very law of God. The legalist doesn't see it that way. The legalist hears the commandments of God. You read through the Ten Commandments and he says, I've got that. I'm, I'm good with this. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. And he begins to add to that law. They even see those that are experiencing pain and sickness in this life as one who is certainly as must have sinned. This is a very common understanding. They, they would look at the law of God and see these particular blessings come for obedience. And that was true. It was true. There, was a, there, were, there were blessings that were promised in the Mosaic Covenant that if you will be obedient in these ways, you will have these particular blessings. That is acceptable to understand it in that way. If they weren't obedient, then there would be curses that would fall upon them. But what you can't do is then go and say anyone who has a problem in their life, anyone who is experiencing sickness or pain, certainly must have sinned in some way. We see that in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is born blind? That's kind of the idea that is there. Well, this man is blind. Certainly someone must have sinned. Now, that's the effect of sin here. Just because someone has an illness in their life doesn't mean that they necessarily cause that illness. The general effects of sin are such that we are living in this world and we have been affected by sin. And one of the consequences of sin is that our bodies don't function as they were designed to function. That's the ways in which sin is debilitating. But these legalists believe they could keep God's standard of the law and they believe they could be righteous based upon it. They should have been looking at Christ as one who was a teacher of the law, but they looked at him as one whose standards were too low. And you'll see this battle between the leaders of Israel and Christ throughout his ministry. Why aren't your, why aren't your disciples washing their hands as they should? Well, it's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. And they had a whole theology behind it that they came about during the time um, when they were exiled. And they said, well, they washed the utensils in the temple, so certainly we should wash our hands. For to be the temple of God ourselves, we're the people who should be the temple of God, so we should wash our hands. And that's okay, there's some theology coming out during that time that you see really brought out later on in the New Testament. But for them to then go and project that upon Christ as though because they, he didn't follow this particular rule that they had, that he is falling short, was to make themselves a legalist. And they make these standards because they believe that they are righteous because of them. They were thought of to be the holiest people at this time period. 
You know, one of the errors that is, that is being espoused in a regular way is that the Pharisees were a people that kept the law of God to a T. I hope you understand that I, I don't believe that. They were believed to be a people that kept the law to a T, but they were not a people that kept the law to a T. You can look at the words of Christ in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 23. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And you have Jesus speaking here, as many prophets in the Old Testament did. And there's a distinction in the law of God here where they were called to do certain things in the ceremonial law in their worship, and they were called to do those. Those are what we would call positive laws. This is in addition to God's moral law. But they were neglecting God's moral law. So they were emphasizing this aspect of the ceremonial law. And God is saying, this is important, yes, but the moral law is of greater importance. So these Pharisees were not a people who kept the law of God to a T. They believed they kept the law of God to a T. The people in their culture believed they were keeping the law of God to a T. But the reality is these men who were legalists were really antinomian. Say, so what is antinomian? Antinomian is the idea of being without law. Anti meaning, meaning none. And namos is the Greek word for law. So these were a people without law. And you might say, how, how can you say these are antinomians? And I would imagine the hedonist to be the antinomian, the one who's just running and intentionally violating sins all over the place and denying God and claiming God doesn't exist. That's the antinomian. This is so difficult to talk to someone. I even talked to someone recently about this. Whenever you go and you diminish the law of God, you make the law of God to be what the law of God is not. You are being without law. Because it's not the law of God that you're emphasizing there. It is man's law. It's your law at that time. And although these men, these Pharisees, had a law that they were keeping, it was not God's law. And it wasn't God's standard that they were meeting. It was their standard. And it was their standard here that they were putting up as this legalistic standard. But it was actually a standard that wasn't God's law. So they were without law. That's the reality that you need to see is that nobody can live perfectly in the world of legalism or perfectly in the world of antinomianism. The two go hand in hand. When a man begins to diminish the law of God and emphasize that as the standard whereby he is made right before God, he is determined to be righteous before God, that man is both a legalist and an antinomian. And he feels quite just in what he does. You understand this. Some of the most immoral people in this culture right now have their own standard of morality. They have their own standard of morality that they will judge Christians by. Look at even Romans 1 as we read that last week. You see at the end of that passage in verse 32, the standard of morality that people who are walking contrary to God's law have. It says in verse 32 of Romans 1, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
Is that not what we see even now in our culture, that there is a standard that people are going to live by? There is a standard whereby they're going to say, this is what is right. They're going to hold others to that standard. They're going to require you to celebrate their standard of morality and righteousness. But that's the reality of legalism and antinomianism. The Pharisees may look differently here than some within our culture that fall into that category, but it's the same reality. It's a misunderstanding of what God's law is. It's a misunderstanding that you can keep that law. It's a misunderstanding of what is rightly required. There's a great book we, met, we read many years back. It's called The Whole Christ. Sinclair Ferguson wrote that book. And, and, it's, and it's a book that talked about the marrow controversy. And this was a controversy that happened several centuries back. And it was a controversy amongst Reformed believers over the law and the gospel and this issue of legalism. He says this about legalism. Um... He says this about legalism. He says, legalism is a particular kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. Eve sees God's law, but she has lost sight of the true God himself, thus abstracting his law from his loving and generous person. She was deceived into hearing the law as only a negative deprivation and not as the wisdom of the Heavenly Father. And she saw this and began to make up her own standard of righteousness in that. That's what was happening there in the garden. The Satan had invaded the garden, and Satan began to seduce Eve, and Satan was calling Eve to a different understanding of morality than the Lord had commanded to them. Ferguson says this about antinomianism. He says, this is the distortion, the lie about God that has entered the bloodstream of the human race. It is the poison that mutates into antinomianism, both in the form of rebellion against God and as a false antidote itself. Scratch anyone who is not a Christian, and this, whatever they may say, is their heart's disposition. Any profession, to the contrary, is itself further form of self-deception. So these ideas of legalism and antinomianism go hand in hand. The one who is creating a different standard whereby he stands before the Lord is likewise one who is deeming himself to be right in standing before the Lord and is diminishing the very law of God. And that is their issue here. They have great issue and concern with Jesus declaring that his sins are forgiven. They don't see him as the son of God. They don't see him as as having this authority. Look in verse 20. It says, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They saw themselves as those who were not in need of God's grace. They saw themselves not in need of Christ to forgive them. For they looked down upon Christ. Christ wasn't keeping their man-made standards rightly, which they believed which were a higher standing than God's law or a right understanding of God's law, though their standards were man-made. 
and they weren't looking at the standard from the heart. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, that's one of the things that Jesus is emphasizing, that God is looking at the heart, not just the outward actions, and they weren't keeping those. And so we see these sinners that are before Christ, these scribes and Pharisees in Israel, and they're in judgment over Christ. But they are debilitated themselves. They are unable to do anything good themselves because they don't see their need of Christ. And their understanding of the law of God is a diminished version of the law of God. When you see the law of God, it should be something that brings you humility. It should be something that leads you to say, I have no ability to do this on my own. I am completely helpless on my own. It should have been like this man and his friends that are saying, there is nothing we can do to change the situation. There's nothing we can do to change the circumstances in our own power. We need Christ to work upon our friend. Christ must change him. Christ must affect him. Christ must heal him. Christ must give him life that he can walk. That is one of the purposes of the law of God. It is to be a mirror that you can look into it and not see all the ways in which everyone else is off and you are getting it all right, but to see the ways that if you will look at it rightly and you will study God's word, and you will sit under the preacher word that you will see the ways in which you are falling short, that you are not meeting the standard, that you are not keeping this law. And that should lead you, dear Christian, to cling to the cross even tighter, to cause you to remember the ways in which you need Christ. It's not that you see your sin and you say, oh, just forget it. I'll never get it right. No, the Lord is going to reveal to you more and more ways in your life that you can see your sin, that you can turn from it. Not so that your life is difficult or boring or painful, but that you can see the way in which you were designed to live, what is best for you, what is best for you individually, what is best for your family, what is best for your community. And in those times... We must cling to the cross even more and walk in obedience, thanking God that he would show us these things. Not standing on our pride saying, well, I've got this. We've arrived. We've met the standard. No, a loving father is going to discipline. A loving father is going to reveal these realities. And a loving father is going to walk you towards righteousness. And the Lord is a loving father. The Lord is a good father. Jesus is the good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice, and he leads his sheep in righteousness. So that's where this should lead us. Not, not to sit there and not to be disappointed, not to, not to furl our brow when we hear the law of God preached and, and say, like, oh, this is so negative, but to say, this is why I need Jesus. And it does neither one. It doesn't leave us sitting back and saying, I'm good just how I am. I don't need to change anything. And it doesn't leave us wallowing in pity, saying, I have no hope. Your hope is where it's been the whole time. It's never been in you. It's never been in your methods. It's never been in your standards. 
It's in Christ, in his ability, and Christ is the one. He's the federal head. He's the second Adam. He has done all that is necessary, which is why we need the grace of the powerful Lord. Let's read that part, verses 22 through 26. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? I don't know. I don't know which one is easier to, to say, but I know which one is easier to do. It's certainly easier to heal this man physically from being paralyzed than it is to forgive him of his sins. Because healing the man required that he use his power to grant the man healing that he could be restored physically. But that wasn't his biggest problem. That wasn't his biggest problem. His biggest problem was his relationship with God. His biggest problem was his sin. And this is a man who is seeing Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who would come forward, the one who had been prophesied, and the one who would be granting healing. He was believing that this is the promised seed of the woman that would come forward. He was believing the prophecies that were given. He was believing upon Christ. That's why Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. That was his greatest need. This man could have been given his arms and his legs. They could have worked perfectly. He could have been given great athletic ability to go and do wonders in the games, to go to the Olympics and to run around and do all kinds of things. And from one perspective, that would have been great. That would have been, it's certainly it's better to live your life in full capacity than it is to be um, paralyzed in some way. But from an eternal perspective, it wouldn't have been beneficial for him. If all he was given was merely his faculties back, if all he was given was merely the ability to walk and to move around and to no longer be paralyzed, he would merely be given a gift from God and spend the rest of his life walking in sin. Here's what you need to understand, that God can give you a gift of some kind. God can bless you in some way. But if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you're going to use what he gives to you. He's going to, you're going to use what he gives you to sin against him even more. Being paralyzed wasn't his biggest problem. There's many things that we look at in this world to try to solve the consequences of sin, to solve man's problems. And, and many of these things can be used in good and worthwhile ways, but they don't address the real issue Money is something people look at. They say there's poverty in this area, and certain things call, happen because people are impoverished. But the reality is that you can get money, and you can get even more money, and you can be blessed with even more money, and the money that you get is merely going to be display who you are. The reality is someone 
who is poor, the way they use money, they're pretty much going to use money the same way if they become wealthy. Money is just an extension of, of who you are. It's, it's demonstrating what it is you treasure. It's demonstrating what is important to you. And so that's what's going to be communicated through money. Money doesn't really change who you are. Now, it may display some evil things about you. It may display some very good things about you. But if you're careless with a small amount of money, you're going to be careless with a large amount of money. If you're benevolent with a small amount of money, you're going to be benevolent with a large amount of money. The same is true with, with education. People look and say, well, look, ignorance is a problem. There's many consequences that happen because of ignorance, but merely giving someone education doesn't solve their real problem. You, you can find some of the most educated people in this world that have done some of the most unbelievably evil things, wars that have been fought by very intelligent people, people that have completely ripped off others through Ponzi schemes and other such things that are very intelligent, very educated. Merely getting educated doesn't solve our issue. No, dear friends, we must understand that we are a people who are born in sin and we need to be changed. We need to be affected. We need the grace of God. We need a Lord Jesus Christ who has acted on our behalf. You must understand the reality of our state. I had a, que I had a conversation with someone recently, and he was unfamiliar with this idea of the fourfold state of man, and we have this covered in the confession. If you look under the confession, under the chapter on free will, and some people are surprised to find that a confession that um, you know, is, is Calvinistic would have a chapter on free will, but it absolutely does because as Reformed Baptists, we understand free will, but we understand it biblically. And the lens that we understand it is through the lens of the fourfold state of man, that God made Adam and Eve perfect, that they were innocent, that they were righteous. They had the ability to walk in righteousness. They had the ability to walk in obedience they also had the ability to walk in disobedience. You know how the story goes. They were disobedient. They joined an alliance with Satan. All the progeny that came after them were in that alliance with Satan and were enemies of God. And that second state that we talk of there is the state of sin. That's what we're born into. That's the situation here that is being communicated through the leper that we saw last week in his uncleanliness and the paralytic that we see this week as one who is unable to move on his own or do anything on his own. He has to be moved around. Well, that's our spiritual state. That's how we're born. So when we understand free will, we understand that you are acting freely. You're acting intentionally. You're not a robot. God's not making you do that, but you're intentionally walking in sin. Why? Because that's the state that you're born in. You need the grace of God. You need to see the seriousness of your sin. You need to see the reality of your sin. You need to see the ways in which you have not kept the law, and you need the grace of God. And that grace comes through one means, and that means is through Jesus Christ. That means is by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus in what he has accomplished, not in your own efforts, not in your own goodness. You have broken not just your cultural standards of goodness. You have broken the standards of the eternal God, that standard of law and justice and righteousness that flows from the very being of God. That is what you have violated and that's our reality. We're not able to help ourselves. We're like this man who is paralyzed, unable to act on our own. 
But the Lord has shown grace. When Christ has come, Christ has been obedient in every way. Only in Christ can we have any spiritual worthwhileness or goodness. Christ is the one who kept the law. And secondly, too, that it's only in Christ Jesus that you can keep the law yourself. Because that's the reality. The Christian can be obedient to the law of God. If you will see the seriousness of your sin, if you see the reality of your sin, if you see the ways in which your sin has affected you and the others around you, and you will see no hope in yourself, and you will see Christ as the one who has been obedient, Christ as, as the Lamb of God, who is, he is slain for sinners, that if you will but trust upon him, that you can have salvation, that you can be cleansed. You can have life. Pastor Fry is about to start a study on this idea, walking in a newness of life. Christian, you're not saved just so that you can die and go to heaven. That is a reason why you're saved. You will die and go to heaven. Praise God for that. But eternal life exists right now in this life. He came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And through the work of Christ in you, you will be made alive. You are made to have understanding. And you are made so that you can actually walk in obedience. And that's the third state that we would talk about there, the state of grace. It's the state of grace that it talks about in, in, in the chapter on the confession on free will. That's the state of existence now as a Christian you have the ability to walk in righteousness and we also still struggle with sin and that's an ongoing issue in the life of a Christian but the beauty here in this state of grace is that you have the ability to walk in obedience you can be obedient to God from the heart you can love God and you can love others which is the summary of the summary of the law Look at how this unpacks in the narrative, and I can't help but see a connection here between what the Lord does in the life of a Christian in this state of grace and what Jesus is doing in the life of this paralytic, or former paralytic, we could say. Look at verses 24 and 25. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home. This is powerful. This is a man who was unable to do anything for himself. His friends are carrying him across the city. His friends are dragging him up a ladder and upstairs. His friends are ripping a hole in the ceiling. His friends are bringing him downward before Jesus on these ropes. That same man who had been carried around for, I would assume, his life, is now before Jesus, and Jesus is commanding him, pick up your bed and go home. And guess what he does? He doesn't keep lying there on on his cot. He doesn't keep lying there on his stretcher. He picks it up and he goes home. Why was he obedient to this command? Was he obedient to Jesus so that he could be healed? No. What about Lazarus? When, when Lazarus is in the tomb, all right, he's decomposing. They warn Jesus of that. He says, remove the stone. They're like, wait a minute. He's been in there a few days. He's like, remove the stone. And he commands him, Lazarus, come out. Did Lazarus come out so that he would be made alive? No. Why did he come out of the tomb? 
The same reason that the paralytic man picked up his bed and he walked home. Because he had been made alive. The Lord had had given him life. This is a spiritual picture that is there. This is a spiritual reality in the life of a Christian. Some people say this. They say, oh, you can't can't believe in salvation by grace alone. That if you just believe upon Jesus, that you're going to be saved. You're going to be forgiven. Because people... People are going to purposely sin and intentionally live their life full of sin even though they, because they think they're saved. But the reality is that is our problem. Our problem is that we live our lives in sin and we need the grace of Christ. We need God's grace to fall upon us. But the reason for your obedience is not grounded in your ability to change your standing with God. That's when it's no longer of grace. That's when you have something that you can boast about. Consider Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So let's stop there. Okay, it's of grace. The grace and the faith are a gift from God. They're given by God, not your own works. If there's something you're doing to make yourself right before God, if there's something that you're doing to save yourself before God, you can boast on it. Suppose it was because you just figured it out better. I just understand this theology better than other people. That's why I am saved in Christ Jesus. You can boast on that. I am just more diligent. I just work harder. I have a planner and I work my things out. You can boast in that. Paul says... Not a result of work so that no one may boast. There's nothing that you can look at in and of yourself to say, this is what's special about me. This is what makes me right before God. But what about those that would say, but if you believe in salvation by grace and through faith, if you believe in faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone, then you just believe that people can live however they want the rest of their lives. I would say no to that. That would be as absurd as if Jesus healed this man after his friends went through all the trouble that they did. They ripped up the roof. They put him down there. And Jesus made him, healed him that he could move, made him no longer paralyzed. And he continued just to lay on that stretcher to be carried around by others. That would be absurd. That would be as absurd as if Jesus commands Lazarus to come forward. He gives him life. And Lazarus just lays there in the tomb and never does anything. Why did the man who was paralyzed get up, carry his bed, and walk off? Because the Lord had given him life. He had healed him. Why did Lazarus walk out of the tomb? Because he was alive. People who aren't paralyzed don't lay on stretchers and get carried around by their friends. People who are living don't live in tombs. He walked because he had been given life. He walked because he had been made whole. Verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 2 is what we emphasize here. See, we emphasize walking in holiness to God, not by making up our own standard, but we see God's standard. And we understand that we may not keep it perfectly always. We understand that we do not keep it perfectly always. Let me be more correct there. But we see that standard that is there, and we see our ability to walk in obedience to that standard 
through the grace of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and because of the thankfulness, the gratefulness we have to the Lord that saved us, who has given us life, to be what we are. That's the purpose of the law of God. It's, it's how we were designed to live. Verse 10 in Ephesians 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the promise that is there, dear Christian. There are good works in your future. There are good works that you will walk in. You now have the ability to walk in these. You were once in a state of being a debilitated sinner, totally unable to do anything worthwhile. You were one who, who sat in judgment of others, one who had your own standard of righteousness, whereby you deemed yourself to be right. You had your own law that you believed you were keeping, but it was no law at all. It was not God's law. It was not God's holy standard. When you see God's law, when you see the perfection of his law, when you see the ways in which you do not keep his law, it leads you, dear friend, to see your need of Christ, to see your inability to do anything for yourself. And that is why you need the grace of the powerful Lord that grace of the powerful Lord will work within you to bring you out of the state of sin, to bring you into a state of grace, that you can walk in obedience, to walk in a newness of life. And we have before us this eschatological hope, this hope that we have in the future, that you will be glorified, dear friends. That's a promise. Sin will no longer affect you. The consequences of sin will no longer affect you. But most importantly, dear Christian, the spiritual effects will no longer affect you. You will not be like Adam and Eve. We will not be like Adam and Eve in their state of innocence. We will be in a state of glorification. We will reside there in the new Jerusalem, and we will be protected. There is no serpent that will invade the walls of the new Jerusalem, and the gates in new Jerusalem are always open, for there are no enemies. The enemies have been defeated. Satan and his minions and all who have followed them will be placed in hell for all eternity and we will reside with the Lord in glory forever and ever. Friends, I hope you look forward to that state. Folks, I hope you are, 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 are trusting in the Lord even during this time. I hope you are seeing the goodness and the grace of God that he has given to us, the blessing that is there. Dear friends, I pray that all of you will see your need of Christ Jesus the necessity of his work, the necessity of his grace, the hopelessness that exists for all who are not in Christ, all who are not in him. Oh, friends, see Christ. See his goodness. See his blessing. See his grace for all who will come to him.